Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Commander's Palace has been a New Orleans culinary landmark since it first opened in 1893. It became an international sensation in the 1970s, once Ella Brennan and her family took over, elevating Louisiana cuisine and launching the careers of chefs Paul Prudhomme and Emeril Lagasse. On this week's show, we celebrate 130 years of Commander's Palace by dipping into our archives to bring you Commander's stories, past and present. We begin with Meg Bickford, the first female to ever rise to the executive chef's position there. There's an awful lot of talent and power in that tiny little frame. Then we hear from Lolly Brennan and T. Martin, the ladies who have been at the helm of commanders for over two decades. Finally, we revisit one of my very favorite Louisiana Eats interviews. Dickie Brennan shares memories of the early days of Commander's Palace and how his dad, Dick Brennan, dreamt up some of the restaurant's most famous dishes. We're raising a glass to a New Orleans icon on this week's Louisiana Eats. I'm Meg Bickford, executive chef at Commander's Palace. Above all else, Commander's Palace is famous for its kitchen. That's the place Paul Prudhomme and Emeril Lagasse both launched their careers by highlighting and elevating Louisiana cuisine. Its legacy continued under chefs Jamie Shannon and Tori McPhail. Then, in 2020, their newest chef was announced, Meg Bickford. Meg became the first female chef in 127 years to burst through the gender barrier and command the historic kitchen. Some months after stepping into her new role, Meg joined us in the studio to talk about her journey to the top. She began by explaining where her love for food started. Well, I think like a lot of people in South Louisiana, Growing up, my life just kind of revolved around food. It always had a very, very important place in our home. And, you know, the kitchen was always the center of the house like it is in so many families in South Louisiana. For us, we used food to grieve over. We used food to celebrate over. You know, when when we were eating one meal, we were talking about what the next one was going to be. And just growing up in that environment, you know, where everyone in my family cooked. Um, not professionally, it was just a trade that everyone learned, and and you were proud to learn it, and things were passed on generations. And so growing up in that environment, I saw how powerful food was and 
how food really made people feel, how food really healed people, how food helped people celebrate. And I knew I wanted to be a part of that feeling. For me early on, it wasn't really the cooking that had me hooked, but just the power of it. Um, But the cooking was the fun part. Meg's passion for cooking led her to the John Fols Culinary Institute at Nichols State University in Thibodeau. Upon graduation, she was hired at Commander's Palace, where she began as garde-manger. So I um, started making salads and learning appetizers and eventually made it to the hotline, where I was working saute and grill, backline. That was pretty fast-paced to move, you know, I mean, in the time span that I did. And it was really hard. You know, in culinary school, I, um, you know, with respect to my peers in culinary school, I was a bit of a big fish in a small sea. And when I went to commanders, it was like, whoa, you know, I mean, like, talk about the tables turned immediately. Uh, But I was very, very fortunate to be surrounded by really talented people. And I was able to learn very quickly because I had no other choice. (laughs) Um, But I excelled really quickly. And um, there was a lot of opportunity. And thank God for that. Chris Barbado and Tori McPhail really took me under their wing and, you know, showed me the right way. And it was sink or swim. In 2015, Meg made her first power move when she was named executive chef at Cafe Adelaide, a commander's property in the Lowe's Hotel on Poydras Street. I asked how breaking that barrier made her feel. I was very, very shocked and thrilled, you know. Um, something Chef Tori always used to say to us is, when's it going to happen? Like, when are you going to be executive chef? What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You know, don't wait till you're 50. It's, you know, it's too late. You got to go. You got to go. And so when that happened, it was like, that's all I could hear in my head. You know, it's like, this. it's happening. This is happening. Um, and so I took over at Adelaide and was there for three beautiful years. And we did a lot of fun stuff. And it was such a great restaurant. Um, and I'm very, very honored that uh, I got to hold the helm there and hold the title that I did for our restaurant group. Um, and, and then new history started. Early in her tenure at Cafe Adelaide, Meg learned some unexpected news. The female executive chef was also going to be a mother. I was curious just how she broke that news to her female bosses, T. Martin and Lolly Brennan. T's expression will never leave my mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> a bit. You know, so I said, well, I have some news to share with everybody. And I said, you know, Richard and I are going to have a baby. And Dottie said, what did she say? And T's just <laughs> across the table staring at me like blank stare. And I said, well, we'll say something. And she goes, I don't, yeah, I mean, yay, you know, just completely, <laughs> completely threw her off guard. And so, you know, we all celebrated and she said, well, you know, I knew we were doing something really cool when I hired, you know, when we had the first female chef of the commander's restaurant group. She said, but I didn't know a baby was going to come with it, you know. So we had a great laugh about it and they were incredibly supportive and still to this day are incredibly supportive. But I also learned a lot of very, very valuable lessons, you know, being pregnant and trying to run a kitchen. Um, My stubbornness and hard-headedness really helped 
me plow through that. I learned something that I have always struggled with is a proper way to delegate to people and, and truly understanding what that means. About halfway through, that became very apparent that I was very poor at that, you know? And I, I had known that about myself, but it's like, okay, but now I have to exercise those skills. You know, I have to hone those skills because this is, you know, health over hardheadedness, you know? But it was hard. It was hot that it was like I was just so scared of, you know, I mean, had never been a mom before, had never gone through labor before, and and my life was about to change drastically. And then what my life was going to be after having a child and still trying to successfully be a chef, um, it was, was scary. So I allowed myself time to think about what was going to be next for me, you know. Um, I allowed myself time to really think about what life I wanted for myself and what life I wanted for my family, you know. And my husband would tell me, well, you can do whatever you want. And if you're concerned about time with your daughter, then you need to think about how many hours a day are you going to spend working. He said, you also need to think about in what mood are you going to come home in. If you don't like your job, if you don't like what you're doing, if you're not satisfied by what you're doing, you might have more time at home. But is it going to be you or is it going to be someone that's unsatisfied? And that was really powerful for me. When it was time to decide about returning to work, T. Martin offered some sage advice. I used my mentors a lot and talked to them a lot about life and One thing that T and I talked about, she said, look, honey, if anybody can do it, she said, Ella Brennan ran a restaurant, and she had kids, and we all love each other today, and I think she did a damn good job. And she said, and there's something that my mom took very seriously, and she said, it's quality of time over quantity of time, and you don't need every weekend off, and you don't need to be home for dinner every night. Yeah, it all sounds fantastic. And some people get to do that, and thank God they do. Good for them, she said. But you need to think about what you want to do, and the rest will work out. And so far it has, and thank God for that advice. So Cafe Adelaide closes because Lowe's decides to do something else. Tell me how that transition went, because you went back to the kitchen at Commander's, but you weren't an executive chef anymore. How did they figure out what to do with you, and how did all that work? <laughs> well, I, I, like I said, I took all time, not off, but <laughs> to my, you know, self, and, um, and really contemplated what I wanted to do, and I kept going back to commanders and I kept thinking about commanders and how much commanders truly meant to me, how much the people there meant to me, how much the culture of that place has impacted my life. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. So I called Tori and I said, I really want to be a part of your team again. And he said, great, when can you start? <laughs> and I laughed. <laughs> and, um, and we talked for a while. We met a few times and, and had dinner, had drinks, and just kind of talked about it. You know, why do you want to come back? Why don't you go do something else? Why do you, you know? And he was very happy to have me back, which is great. 
And I knew I wasn't stepping in as chef de cuisine because there already was one. And Chris Lynch was doing a phenomenal job. And I was excited to get to work with him. Um, But I knew what I could bring to the team. And I think the team knew what I could bring. And what my title was at Commanders never really, of course, it's all very important. But it's more about the jobs that we do than the titles that we carry. And so I knew that I was needed, you know, Um, and that's where I wanted to be. So we made it work, and it worked really well for a long time. And Chris and I got along very, very well, and I think we complemented each other very well. And I've worked under Tori for a very long time, I mean, 12 years when he left. Um, And so he and I could kind of, you know, communicate without communicating. And we had a few great years, and then the big news hit. (laughs) That big news, of course, was that Tori McPhail, the longest-tenured executive chef in Commander's Palace history, had resigned and was going home to Montana, meaning now there was a vacancy at the very top. I wasn't overwhelmingly shocked by the news. Um... But I was surprised at how soon it was, because I thought it would be quite a while longer. Um, But yeah, I I knew what I wanted. And my goal when I went back to Commanders was to put myself in the position to get the job. So that's what happened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I was um, approached. He and I had some secret meetings with Lowey and... It was a very secretive time, but sometimes that's how those things need to go. And we just had some really great talks about the future of Commanders and what that looks like and what she wants it to look like and what I want it to look like. And when the news came public, it was pretty immediate that that's that's what was going to happen. So we gathered our whole team at Commanders and said, hey, this is what's going on, you know, and Chef Tori's leaving, and we're all incredibly sad, believe me. Um, But then they, in the same sentence, said, and here's our new chef. And so it was very exciting, and um, there was a lot of tears and a lot of really big hugs, and I feel like I was welcomed with incredibly open arms, which was amazing. I mean, it was one of the most emotional days of my life. I mean, it really was. It was incredible. How did your life change from that day forward? Oh, did it. (laughs) Did it. Um, It's funny how you always, you know, you think you understand what goes on on the other side of that fence. And then you get on the other side and it's like, oh, wow. You know, Um, and working so closely with Tori for so many years, um, I did have a very good idea of what his day-to-day life was and what his responsibilities were. Um, But going through them now, you know, and it's just a lot to juggle. It is so much, but it's also incredibly rewarding and it's it's phenomenal, you know? I love it. I absolutely love it. I absolutely got my dream job. I just got to keep my head above water. <laughs> Meg, you must have dreams and hopes and plans. And it's so interesting though because you have kind of hit what many people would look at as the pinnacle of a life's success. What's going to happen next? (laughs) 
Well, I think we have a lot of work to do. I have a lot of work to do, you know? One thing about commanders that I've always felt with general managers like Don Strunk or Kenny Meyer, it's beautiful leadership. And I've always been told that commanders isn't great tomorrow if it's not great today. And that's, I mean, literally in my desk, looking at my computer, I have a piece of paper behind my computer that says, Commander's Palace is not iconic tomorrow if we don't prove ourselves today. And it's not about what got us here. It's about where we're going. And and I firmly believe that. And I read that piece of paper every single day because it, it isn't. I mean, we are very, very fortunate. And we have a beautiful history in this city. And you walk from the main dining room upstairs in into the parlor room and you see James Beard's lining the wall, you know, and it's it's phenomenal. And people have done phenomenal things in that building. But we can't rest on those laurels and and making commanders great today and then making it great tomorrow and then making it great five years from now and 10 years from now. I mean, we have to be on the leading edge constantly. So I have a lot of work to do. So so to say, you know, that I've 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 hit, you know, this peak. Um, I absolutely feel that I have. I absolutely um, understand the gravity of where I stand today. And the amount of hard work and dedication and all of that that it took to get here is very real. Um, And I pride myself on it. But now the true test begins. That was executive chef Meg Bickford of Commander's Palace. She spoke with us in 2021. Coming up next, our celebration of Commander's Palace 130 years continues. We hear from Lolly Brennan and T. Martin, who share childhood memories and discuss what it's like to be at the helm of the iconic restaurant today. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. 
If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. Located in New Orleans Garden District, Commander's Palace has been a dining destination since 1893. In 1974, siblings Ella, Dottie, Dick, and John Brennan took over the historic property and polished it into the culinary gem that it is today. Second-generation Brennans, cousins T. Martin and Lolly Brennan, are currently at the helm of the culinary landmark. As we celebrate 130 years of Commanders, we now revisit a conversation we had with Lolly and T, recorded in one of the restaurant's dining rooms in 2015. They talked about Commanders and shared their experiences growing up as members of one of New Orleans' most famous restaurant families. Lolly spoke first. So my parents were John and Claire Brennan, Dad was the uh, third in the birth order of the original six siblings. So I'm, I'm T. Martin, and my mom's name is Ella Brennan Martin, not that anybody ever called her that. So what are your memories when you all were down on Royal Street as children? What did you love to do down there? I, mean, I went to work all the time with Mom. I mean, I just... Starting at, like, what age, T? I, I, I mean, eight you know, nine, younger, you know, I always kind of liked the work thing, and I would just follow my mom around. My good memories are going the Mardi Gras season, yeah. and mom and dad would come home from school and would have to do our homework, and then we'd have to get all dressed up, and we'd go down and have dinner, and then when the parade got close, we could go out on the balcony, but none of the guests were allowed, allowed on the balcony. So after we caught all of our beads, Mom would divide them up, and then we had to get up, and we had to go give them away to the other tables, the other customers. <laughs> so I guess that was my first uh, BOD shift, you know, interacting with the guests by going to give them my beads. What ages were you all when the move uptown occurred? When, when Commander's Palace happened, how old were you? So in 74, 73, I was 13, 14. And I, well, I'm not going to say. I'm a little bit older. <laughs> <laughs> so it's safe to say you were in your teens. All right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. But a bunch of us were already living near Commander's. Uh-huh. And so then all the Commander's traditions, which we'd all already dined at Commander's. FYI, on my ninth birthday, we did not own Commander's, and we went to eat dinner there. And mom, we're there at the Adelaide, my dad, and my mom. And then we said, we got a birthday present for you today. I said, what's that? She said, we bought this restaurant. I went, and I kind of oh. looked around. <laughs> it just happened to be the day the thing closed. But it's been one hell of a present, I got to tell you. Well, I was going to say that this has been the gift that's kept on giving, hasn't it? <laughs> a lot of work, but yes. Yes. And, so, And how about you, Lolly? What? Well, I remember going, um, my grandfather was um, in the banana business, and he used to have lunch at Commander's before the family owned the restaurant right. because it was all the men from the port would come have lunch. So I remember going with my grandparents um, as a very young girl on occasion. Your mother's parents. 
My mother's yeah, parents. Yeah. Thank you, T. Yes. Um, but then, of course, after the family bought the restaurant, you know, each of the siblings chose different nights to work, and my dad would always work on a Friday night. And whenever I'd come into New Orleans from school or out of town, my favorite thing would get all dressed up and go to right. dinner at Commanders for Friday night. Right. And loved it and right. still do. Right. Yeah. What was that like before the Brennans? became the proprietors at Commander's Palace. You know, I think it was a great restaurant at one time. I mean, by the time we started going there, I think it had, as we politely like to say, had fallen on hard times. You know, mm -hmm. Mr. Moran had died, and then Ms. Moran, Mom had just said to her one day, if you, you know, Eleanor, if you ever decide you want to sell, you know, we, we love it here. And that a few years later, she called, and a week later, we owned Commander. So that's how that one happened. But, um, you know, it was just heavy, big frocked wallpaper and everything, and, and it was very old school, you know, the steak and bernays, you know, blah, 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 Marchand event, you know, all that. A lot that. of table-side service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but classic, great service, but, you know, that was going to quickly evolve as soon as our gang got involved, and it did, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Did you both grow up knowing that the restaurant business was going to be your life? Lally has an interesting history. Tell no, him, Lally. <laughs> Absolutely not. You know, I, um, well, okay, I got married really young, and I moved out of town and uh, had a ball for about eight years, and then that just didn't seem to work out, and I came home and uh, floundered around for about a year, and my dear, sweet, precious father asked me if I'd come help one day a week, and um, I couldn't say no. I mean, he was just such a gentleman. And then from one day a week to two days a week to shifts to whatever. And that's how I got into the business. I didn't intentionally at all. I had an art history degree. You know, I, um, I had no idea I was going to wind up doing this. And um, thank goodness he invited me to come work one day. Believe it or not, me either. I, uh, you know, my mom's my, my best friend and my business mentor, but she discouraged me from going into the restaurant business. So I was going to go to law school, and last minute I switched and got an MBA. And then I went off and was working for another a company out of California in real estate syndication. And when Aunt Dottie called one day and said, um, your mom's going to have heart surgery tomorrow. And I'm like, oi. And so driving home, I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing trying to prove myself or whatever? I'm going to come home and, um, you know, I want to be with her. And so I came home and actually started this little food products business, you know, all of us cousins whatnot, and then came into the restaurant business. Dickie, you know, said, come on, let's do a restaurant, and Brad and I were going to do something, so we all got together, and everybody, and we went off and did Palace Cafe, you know, but we, but my whole life, we were really near commanders, and then mom and Dottie moved into the house next door when they were both, you know, living in these bigger houses by themselves after Aunt Adelaide died, so it's just been just a big, big part of my life. Talking to other people, and you all are the first ladies that I've had this conversation with, it seems like all the gentlemen who I've spoken with start off either in the kitchen or especially as busboys. Um, so when Dad said, come help, mm -hmm. what did he want you to do, Lolly? Well, um, what I first did was work as a hostess at Mr. B's. And um, then from that point, I, I moved up to Commander's and did the banquet sales and then took on more and more responsibility um, from that point on. But no, I did, I've done um, no real kitchen shifts, but I've certainly washed dishes and mopped up things and, you know, cut garlic bread and done any of that kind of a thing that's needed. And, and how about you? 
you know, one day uh, growing up uh, near commanders, uh, all the dishwashers walked out. They were mad about something. And, you know, they call up Dickie and Nikki and all of us. And so we get all the neighborhood kids and we'd go over and do the dishes. Stuff like that happened all the time. And I spent little shifts in the restaurant. But since I had gone and done the MBA and done other stuff, when I came back, um, I actually did. I spent six months in the kitchen working under Emerald. Um, because I just wanted to do it. And I loved food, but I, I knew I'd never do it if I didn't do it right then. And um, so I was really tickled to do that. That was great. But, my, you know, I could never get the daggum garlic out of my fingernails. <laughs> but I'll tell you, my first day, um, actually, it's funny, uh, Robert Bruce, who you might know, was there. And, you know, the Emerald and everybody, and they're like, oh, here we go. So they were going to do the typical put me through the ringer like everybody, you know. Anyway, so, the, you know, day one, they hand me, like, two crates of live uh, soft-shell crabs. And they, they just go, pull the eyes out. We'll be back in a half an hour. I'm like, really? <laughs> really? Okay, fine. So I have to pull the eyes out of the live soft-shell crabs. You know, anyway. But, you know, that kind of ribbing definitely went on. Tell me what your life in the restaurant is like today. <laughs> No day is the same. That's true. And, um, and I'm glad you used the word what your life is like because it's not a job. You know, it's our lifestyle. You know, Go from um, thing the to thing. thing I love the most is um, getting to work closely with my staff because they do become your family because you spend so much time with them, more than really your family. And, um, of course, the customers. And on the way out the door when you get a, oh, thank you, we had a wonderful time. You know, it's just like, whew, okay, that, that's a winner. That's a great day. There's something that I know about Commander's Palace that often surprises people when I tell them this. Because one of the remarkable things about the restaurant is that in many ways, you all <coughs> created the team service, how a team really works together, and the best way to properly serve the guests while being very hands-on and yet not too obtrusive. Right. Tell us about the salt and pepper. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, in the, it's in the cookbook. Okay, <laughs> I know. Okay, so uh, when the customer or the guest sits down, you have your salt and pepper shakers are separated. And so when the captain or the front waiter approaches the table to take the cocktail order, they put the salt and pepper shakers together so that the next member of the team only has to look at the table to realize that the table's already been greeted so they don't double greet the table. I mean, it's aggravating that, you know, can I take your cup? You know, would you like something to drink? I already gave that order. So anything that we can do to find a way to make your experience better and less obtrusive and sort of magically appear and disappear at all the right times, that's what we're constantly working on. And I think a lot of other places, you know, they talk a lot about service, but I, I think Commanders has the greatest focus on it. We spend so much time and energy on it, I can't even tell you. But, you know, the goal... Bobby is always the same. We want to be that restaurant that New Orleans is so proud of when it's their very, very special occasion or the friends in town or they, it just has to be right. And it's not to say we don't ever blow it. We do once in a blue moon. You know, we're human. But that's what we love. We love delivering that experience. We feel like ambassadors for New Orleans and we feel like we always say we may hold the keys, but Commander's Palace belongs to New Orleans. From 2015, that was Lolly Brennan and T. Martin, co-proprietors of Commander's Palace. 
What is Noki? And what does it have to do with the Commander's Palace legacy? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, discover world-class culinary flavors on the North Shore this summer. Experience the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter. This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is gnocchi, and what does it have to do with the Commander's Palace legacy? Gnocchi is an acronym of the New Orleans Culinary and Hospitality Institute. Gnocchi is the brainchild of T. Martin, her cousin Dickie Brennan, and George Brower, Dickie's sister Lauren's husband. Founded in 2013 specifically to better serve New Orleans' culinary and hospitality community by offering affordable short-term professional training to help jumpstart careers here in the Crescent City. With separate culinary and baking programs, the nonprofit school began graduating students in 2019. In just 100 days, students receive hands-on instruction with student-teacher ratios of just 16 to 1. There's a robust scholarship program designed so that all qualified applicants can afford the education. Noki is a serious asset to our local hospitality industry, something that is truly the lifeblood of New Orleans. Their annual gala is scheduled for Wednesday, September 20th. It's a fabulous party, complete with music, delicious food, and the very best cocktails in a rooftop setting with stunning views of the Crescent City. To learn more, visit their website, noki.org. I'll see you there. In 
New Orleans, the name Brennan has become synonymous with fine dining, with generations of the large Irish family having made their mark on the local restaurant scene. The story of the first family of Crescent City cuisine began with Owen Brennan, who opened the Vieux Carré restaurant on Bourbon Street, which would soon relocate to Royal Street and become known as Brennan's. Following Owen's death in 1955, his family continued operations at Brennan's until an acrimonious split in the 1970s. As a result, Owen's siblings, Adelaide, John, Ella, Dottie, and Richard, who went by Dick, would develop Commander's Palace in the Lower Garden District. As the son of late Dick Brennan Sr., restaurateur Dickie Brennan Jr. witnessed firsthand the transition his father made in moving from Brennan's on Royal Street to transforming Commander's Palace into a New Orleans institution. Dickie joined us in our studio in 2015 to share childhood memories of his father, including the story of how Dick Sr. invented the iconic jazz brunch. Dickie, I am so thrilled to have this opportunity to sit back with you and look back in time. I'm curious, do you have any childhood memories of eating at the Brennan's on Royal Street? Oh, absolutely. Um, Dad worked Sundays because that was the busy breakfast. You know, Sunday breakfast was huge at Brennan's. And Ann Ella, being the oldest sister, she liked Saturday. She liked being in the restaurant Saturday nights. And so little brother worked those breakfasts, you know. And as I got older, I'd go down with him. And, uh, you know, I'd hang out up in the office, which was a funny office up in the attic. I'd go play out in the patio. Then he'd sit me at a table and I'd get an egg dish sent to me. And, you know, sometimes he'd come sit down with me. Other times I'd just sit there and eat by myself. But I have vivid memories of being with my dad for breakfast on occasion. And then in the 70s, our family split up the business. And so my dad and his brothers and sisters moved from their flagship, which was, you know, something they built into being a very successful business, into commanders, which had become very run down over the years and didn't know if they were going to be able to pay the light bills. Hmm. So uh, I certainly walked in as a teenager or was exposed to them uh, having a lot of stress and trying to figure out what they were going to do to turn this old gem back into something, you know, that could thrive. Well, your very earliest memories must be filled with restaurant dining and delicious food. You know, Poppy, we moved into the house I grew up in, I guess, in 69. I was nine years old. And uh, maybe right after that, we bought Commander's Palace, which was two blocks away. So, yeah, my playground was Commander's Palace, which was pretty awesome being a 10, 11-year-old kid. So uh, that was where I hung out most days. Great after-school treats, I imagine. Boy, I tell you, they... (laughs) You know, they cre- I remember they created a dish called Baby Veal Lafayette, and I just fell in love with it. And I'd go eat about two or three of them, and they'd kind of tell, back her down, buddy. You know, I mean, that was young kid starving after school. I mean, that was my snack, yeah. two or three Baby Veal Lafayettes. By that time, you're in middle school and getting into high school, and it's in the Brennan Good Irish Work Ethic. It's time for you to go to work, huh? Absolutely. Uh, you know, my dad's generation 
they got into the business and really had no background in the restaurant uh, industry. And the one thing they that none of them did was cook. I mean, they studied and learned as much as they could about food, and I think they developed incredible palates when it came to tasting foods. But none of them actually cooked. And so I was interested as a kid, and my dad really encouraged me to do it because he felt like that's something, you know, he never could step in and actually do that. You know, I, I don't know that people completely appreciate the role of the restaurateur in the creative end of the kitchen. Right. But it's collaborative, isn't it? It is. You know, food development can come from anybody. And it's not, you know, it's tough when you're the chef and all the pressures that have to do everything yourself. I think some of the best dishes come out of collaboration. In fact, Paul Prudhomme told me one time, he says, did I ever tell you what your dad did to me with bread pudding souffle? And I'm like, no. He said, man, it was a busy, busy dinner at Commander's. And he says, I was working the line, and we were just really going down. And your dad walks the back, all the way on the line with me and comes up, whispers in my ear. He says, Paul, let's make a great dessert. Let's do a bread pudding souffle. And he said, first he's like, geez, I'm, Dick, I'm trying to get us out of the weeds here. Can you, can we talk later? And he's like, well, sure. And, but he said he couldn't stop thinking about it. And in fact, as soon as the shift was over, he went home and uh, kind of just wrote out kind of a recipe for it. And it was just real simple. He, it just came to him right away. He went in the restaurant first thing the next morning, pulled one together let him try it, and it's it was history. You That's know. incredible. My dad, you know, I talk about walking from our home to Commander's. He also walked into Paul one day. He says, Paul, I, I walk to work every day, and I, I, I step on pecans. He says, but I've never stepped or seen an almond tree in New Orleans. Why do we do trout almond dean when we could be doing trout pecan? And that's when we created a Commander's trout pecan. Well, you were part in high school of another landmark occasion for New Orleans food. Would you tell us the story of the birth of the New Orleans Jazz Brunch? How did your dad get this great idea? I guess it was like 73 or 4. No, it's probably 74. And if 20 people came by on a Sunday after church, that was the the brunch crowd at, at Commander's Palace. Wow. So must have been empty and lonely in there. Well, <laughs> here was a guy that was going every Sunday of his life, you know, for 20 years, taking care of a 1,000 people at breakfast at Brennan's to 20 people showing up if, if that was going to happen. And, you know, we had gone to Europe. To It was back when getting the URL pass, and you would take the trains through 10 countries in Europe and my dad wanted to take my sister and I. So my mother and father, the four of us, flew over and literally hopped on trains and got off and found little hotels and wherever in, in all these different countries. And and uh, and it was while we were there, uh, he saw some musicians and he just, I guess it came to him, I want to put music in, in the dining room. It's New Orleans, it's jazz, let's put music and food together in the dining room. So he did. He called, uh, you know, I guess he was calling just to check in 
uh, see how things were going. And he told Ann on the phone, he says, I've got a great idea. I'm, I want to do jazz brunch at, you know, at, at Commander's. And she was like, sure, whatever, whatever. Come on home. <laughs> Quit playing. Come on home. And so dad called up Alvin Acorn, who was a great jazz musician uh, locally, and said, Alvin, can you come by with a couple of people? I want you to just play some nice jazz music in the dining room. I don't want a stage. I don't want you, you know, stand. I want you to walk around the dining room, you know. So here we were, and it was the Saturday before the first Sunday, and someone had done the an etching uh, of the facade of Commanders. So it had that unique with the sign that hangs out over Washington Avenue. And so it was that picture, and it said, take the streetcar to the historic Garden District Jazz Brunch Commander's Palace. And literally ran off copies up in the office there. And my sister and I got on a streetcar and went down to the French Quarter. And we walked around Jackson Square, believe it or not. And we passed out these pamphlets all Saturday. And we wake up Sunday morning. You know, my dad wakes me up and I'm putting on my busboy outfit. You know, I had the black pants and the white shirt and the bow tie and polished shoes. Always had to have polished shoes. Um, and we were walking to the restaurant, you know, early morning to go set it up. And, um, and he asked me, he said, how many people do you think we're going to do? I was like, I don't know. I mean, I was a teenager. I was like, I, I don't know. And he kept pushing me. I said, all right, 100 people. <laughs> and um, he's like, well, that would be good. All right. Well, at 200 people, we closed the doors. Um, it just, I guess we did a good job of passing out the pamphlets. But I can remember, you know, we were little kids and people, the people who would stop, and they'd say, well, what you got? And we'd, we'd, we'd describe it. They'd go, wow. And I mean, think about it. You're in the French Quarter. Yeah. You get to t- it's a reason to take this incredible streetcar that's been around forever. You go into one of the most historic neighborhoods outside of the French Quarter in New Orleans to a wonderful old neighborhood restaurant uh, that had been there almost a hundred years old to go listen to music, jazz music, and have brunch. It's a magical. That sounds mixture. pretty good, doesn't it? It sounds fantastic. It was so I guess we had an mixture. easy sell, Lauren and I, but uh, but I don't know. That's that's how it laid out, and it's it's an honor for me that that I'm able that I was able to to witness or participate to the extent I did, and to see how it's become such a tradition in this city, you know. And I've always looked up to my dad. He's got incredible vision, and you know, things that he's come up with have been amazing. But um, but that's just kind of you know. That's him. Creating Uh, the Jazz Brunch is quite a legacy. And what a special thing for you to have that clear memory of um, high school age Dickie Brennan in his busboy's uniform, walking to work with Dad, getting ready to launch the brunch that changes the world, the Jazz Brunch. Absolutely. It's It's a great memory. And I walked from that house on 3rd Street to Commander's many, many times with my dad over the years. And uh, that certainly was uh, one of the better times we walked together. Dickie Brennan, Jr., son 
of the late Dick Brennan, Sr. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.